Well, it's good to be back with you once again after being gone last week. And we are going to continue our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you will take your Bibles and turn there, we're in 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to look at a little bit more of what Paul has to say to the Corinthian church regarding the misunderstanding and misuse frankly, abuse of spiritual gifts. You will recall they were heavily influenced by the pagan mystery religions, the ecstasia, enthusiasmos that we've studied. And so this is a corrective portion of his letter to them. Let me read this section of scripture, and then we will focus on a portion of it this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And such is the word of the Lord. Before we look more closely at this, let me frame our time together with a few comments. Besides worldliness, I believe the three greatest threats to the evangelical church today are ecumenism, charismaticism, and progressivism. Ecumenism, of course, is a movement that compromises truth for the sake of some kind of perceived unity. Charismaticism, as we will look at today, misrepresents and dishonors the Holy Spirit and exalts emotionalism, mysticism, um, experience over truth. And then, of course, we're all familiar with progressivism. We see it in our politics today. It embraces infanticide, open borders, socialism, uh, the pernicious social gospel, uh, which is nothing more than Marxism disguised in the garb of Christianity. And then, of course, they embrace as well the damning moral perversions of the LGBTQ community, a movement that, that has depravity that, that is beyond our imagination when you look into it. It surpasses the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah. And where you find one of these movements, you will find them all in a church. And for one good reason, because all three of these movements deny the authority of Scripture. All three espouse heretical positions foreign to the Word of God and therefore hostile to it. But as we come to our study here in 1 Corinthians 12, we focus our minds primarily on the issue of the threats pertaining to the modern charismatic movement and the various cults that it has spawned, including that of Pentecostalism and the word faith movement. And folks, I must tell you as a pastor, I will do everything in my power to protect this church 
from these damning and divisive, pernicious doctrines. These are aberrations that misrepresent and malign the Holy Spirit of God. And if it offends him, it should offend each of us. I take this threat very seriously as a pastor. This is a cause for righteous indignation, the type that David experienced in Psalm 69, 9. He said, zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This, by the way, was also the verse that the Lord Jesus quoted when he ran the money changers out of the temple, those that had made it a den of thieves and made it a place of counterfeit worship. Dear friends, we all have a divine mandate to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is the canon of scripture that we have before us. Jude 3 speaks of that. In fact, he went on to say in verse 23, after excoriating false teachers, and he warns believers to stay away from them, and then he admonishes us to, quote, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some who have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So indeed, while we are to show mercy to, to those caught up in these false doctrines, we've got to be very careful that we don't find ourselves also being deceived by... These demonic doctrines. And frankly, these deceptions are championed by the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. And I liken it, I liken it to anthrax. It is highly contagious and it is deadly. Peter warns us about these false teachers that promote these kinds of lies. In Second Peter 2, he says this, beginning in verse 1. He tells us they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. He went on to say, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Verse 18, he went on to say, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And there we have three marks of these false teachers. We see it all the time. They exploit others through sex, through money and power. It should therefore be no surprise to any of us that Celebrity charismatic pastors and televangelists, both male and female, make up the majority of the top 50 well-known publicly disgraced figures that you can read on WikiLeaks, for example. Everything from moral failure to financial impropriety. And it is for this reason that in 2 John, verses 10 and 11, we are told to completely disassociate ourselves from heretics, lest we give the impression that somehow we sanction their teachings and, quote, participate in their evil deeds. This is why I will have nothing to do with the local ministerial associations in this area. There's every brand of heretic known to man that we see there. Roman Catholic priests, charismatic Pentecostal pastors, lesbian and women preachers, and on and on it goes. 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Later on, he says, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Now, in light of these dangers, it is, impa- it is paramount that we examine very carefully what the Word of God has to say regarding spiritual gifts, because this is where the charismatics tend to, to ab- abuse the Word of God and offend the Spirit the most. Now, some will say, Pastor, I, I just don't get it. I mean, I know they're a little different, and I just don't understand what's the big deal. Well, let me summarize what my concerns are with this blasphemous movement that makes a mockery of the Holy Spirit and is infecting every part of this globe with the allure of material wealth and physical healing. Although the Pentecostal movement began in the early 1900s and was largely considered to be a cult by theological conservatives, It gained momentum in the 1960s with the start of the charismatic renewal movement that can be traced to St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California. It gradually made its way into dead Protestant churches that had embraced theological liberalism like I was talking with you about earlier that the Germans did. And that ignited them now with something new and something exciting. And by the 1970s, it was exploding in growth. If you read the history, you will see that undiscerning dead and apostate churches drank in the Kool-Aid of unbridled emotionalism, of private gibberish and unbiblical mysticism all of which fomented chaos and provided a platform for every flamboyant wacko from Waco to Tokyo. And we see it to this very day. And you add to that the power of television. Then all of a sudden you have televangelists all over the place. You remember Paul and Jan Crouch of TBN. They're stationed up here at the old Twitty City in Hendersonville. Then there was Benny Hinn and Creflo Dollar, Andrew Womack, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, Marilyn Hickey, Paula White, and now you have T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, and on it goes. Folks, what we have today is a tsunami of spiritual raw sewage that is pouring over the entire globe. Nearly half of American Christians in any denomination and roughly two-thirds of American Pentecostals now embrace the basic premise of the prosperity gospel, which says God wants you to be happy, healthy, and rich. That's what the gospel is all about. Recent studies estimate that the total number of Pentecostals and charismatics around the world are just over 500 million There are 80 million in North America, 141 million in Latin America, 135 million in Asia, 126 million in Africa, and 38 million in Europe. In an article written by Ted Olson in Christianity Today, 
He observed that most Pentecostals and Charismatics, quote, overwhelmingly agree that God will grant material prosperity to all believers who have enough faith. Obviously, Jesus and the apostles didn't get that memo, nor have countless others over the centuries who have served Christ. So here's my concern in a nutshell. The modern Pentecostal and charismatic movement could very well be likened to a cult because they affirm serious doctrinal errors pertaining to many things, but especially the doctrines of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. This in turn dishonors the Holy Spirit by attributing to him bizarre, ridiculous, blasphemous, and even immoral actions. It undermines the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. It distracts people from the true ministry of the Holy Spirit by offering clever counterfeits. Worse yet, it breeds all manner of false doctrine and provides a platform for false teachers, for narcissistic charlatans, hucksters, quacks, and fruitcakes ruled by their emotions. Moreover, it fosters spiritual pride and self-aggrandizement, and it promotes mysticism and emotionalism that leads to mindless ecstasy and counterfeit worship in churches. And then finally, it diminishes the glorious way the Holy Spirit worked in the foundational stages of church history. And there's no greater evidence of this than what you see in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement, especially given the fact that they insist that the revelatory sign gifts that is, the reception and proclamation of new revelation from God, and the confirmatory sign gifts, that's performing of miracles, gifts of healing, speaking in tongues, they believe that all of those things are still in operation today. This is the charismatic, or it's sometimes called continuationist movement, which cannot be defended biblically or historically. In In opposition to this, Those who believe the revelatory and confirmatory sign gifts passed away when the foundational stage of the church ended are called cessationists. We believe that they have ceased, and that's the position that we hold here at Calvary Bible Church. And we will hold as long as I'm pastor here, and hopefully even after I'm gone, because that is the biblical position. Charismatics believe, for example, that the gift of prophecy is still in effect today, and certain people have supernatural abilities to predict the future or to tell you something that God has said that he hasn't told anybody else. People like Jack Deere, Paul Kane, Bob Jones, etc. I met some of these people. Uh, I've met, been around some of the Kansas City prophets at a specific gathering. I've never witnessed anything so demonic or bizarre in all my life. The problem is that very few of their prophecies ever come true, which means they give false prophecies. Certainly, they don't come true beyond the natural law of guessing. In fact, if you listen to their prophecies, they're kind of like those little things you pull out of your, what's the little cookies you get at the fortune cookies, yeah. 
real vague, like trying to nail jello on a wall, you know, you're just not real sure. Maybe that came true, maybe it didn't. And although they will ready, readily admit this, which is really interesting, they blame it all on the lack of faith when, of the prophet when, they don't, when those things don't come true. And also argue that there's such a thing as fallible prophecies. Boy, that's comforting. How would you like it if I came up to you and say, you know, I may be right, I may be wrong here, but here's what I'm thinking. In fact, they will even warn people that although their prophecies are occasionally right, they are often full of errors and mistakes, and you you should never make any major future decisions on what you're hearing. Folks, no wonder there's so much chaos and confusion in charismatic churches. And I know some of you have come out of those churches. But I must remind you that what God says about this, he says that any so-called prophet who supposedly received some revelation from God. And that revelation from God, that prophecy, turns out to be inaccurate or untrue. That person is to be summarily rejected as a fraud. God's very clear about this. Let me read Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Here's the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So God is profoundly offended when anybody presumes to speak on his behalf. When what is being spoken are not the utterances of God revealed in Scripture. Yet inaccurate and untrue predictions are the hallmark of the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movement, and they don't even deny that. Charismatic prophet Bill Hammond directly contradicts what I just read in Deuteronomy 18 when he asserts, quote, we must not be quick to call someone a false prophet simply because something he said was inaccurate. He goes on to say, missing it a few times in prophecy does not make a false prophet. No mortal prophet is infallible. All are liable to make mistakes, end quote. Now, folks, of course, this kind of chicanery also denies the doctrine of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our sole source of authority and faith and practice. But I must add that this is also an invitation for every narcissistic crackpot with a quiver in his liver to say whatever mystical revelation he or she feels at the moment. And that's what you see constantly. It may be something they have fabricated in their own mind. It may be some subjective impression. It may be some imagined experience or or it may be something revealed from a demon. But it is not from God. The canon is closed, Jude 23. It is called the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You will recall in Revelation 22, beginning in verse 18, the Apostle John warns against altering the biblical text, which represents the close of the New Testament canon there in Revelation. 
In other words, anyone who tinkers with the truth of the word of God by adding to it, taking away from it, falsifying it, mitigating it, altering it in any way, misinterpreting it, is going to bring judgment upon himself or herself in the most severe form. And because it misrepresents God and it leads people to worship a God that does not exist, and because it causes people to claim promises God never made, it's a frightening thing to say that somehow the God that they are promoting is not the God of the Bible. Deuteronomy 13, again, if a prophet or a dreamer dreams something and gives a sign or a wonder that, that, that uh, does not come to pass, and, or, and, and he says, let us go after other gods and let us serve them. That man was to be put to death. So the point is, God is very serious about this matter. So we need to be as well. We need to be loving and kind, but we have to be forthright and stalwart in our determination not to let this enter into the church and enter into our minds and hearts. And sadly, people in these movements begin to expect the next special revelation from their pastor. And the problem is they have nothing to really validate the truthfulness of what is said except experience. And the problem there is when personal experience becomes the final arbiter of what is true, the clear teaching and authority of Scripture has to take a back seat to subjectivism, right? Which then opens the floodgate to the kinds of theological errors and doctrinal aberrations that characterize the charismatic movement. It's, it's remarkable to me to think how the father of lies loves to promote deceptions under the guise of the work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting how he loves to do that? And even the false teachers believe their own lies. It's frightening. Jesus speaks about this in the day of judgment, Matthew 7, 22. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, friends, rather than being distracted and deceived by the charismatic counterfeits, believers need to rediscover the true work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has authored Scripture. He is the one who works in the minds of unbelievers through illumination to enlighten us, to help us to understand and submit to the teachings of the Word of God. He is the one who empowers His Word to bring conviction to unbelievers, and to sanctify the redeemed. In his excellent book, Strange Fire, The Danger of Offending the Holy Spirit with Counterfeit Worship, John MacArthur said this, the primary tool the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify believers is his inspired word. By insisting that God speaks directly through intuitive revelation, mystical experiences, and counterfeit gifts, continuationists actually diminish God's true means of sanctification. As a result, believers are tempted to turn from the word and thereby forfeit genuine spirituality, choosing instead the barrenness of subjective feelings, emotional experiences, and imaginative encounters. 
But truly being filled with the Spirit comes from being indwelled by the Word of God. Walking in the Spirit is seen by the fruit of a changed life. Evidence of the Spirit's work is measured in terms of growth in holiness and Christ-likeness, not emotional outbursts or ecstatic experiences, end quote. Now, by way of quick review, the last time we were together, we began to examine the representative sampling of these marvelously diverse gifts that Paul delineates here in verses 8 through 11. You will recall that, first of all, he mentions the word of wisdom. Notice verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. And as we studied in great detail, this would include direct revelation from God and having a person having special insights into the truths of Scripture and the ability to communicate these truths through rational statements and propositions uh, concerning the gospel, which encompasses the totality of Scripture. And this may be listed first because it is the most important and foundational of all the gifts, and it was the characteristic gift of the apostles who were listed first in order of importance in the list God in the list of those God gifted to serve the church. Remember in verse 28 of chapter 12, and God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and so on. So this was something, a gift that was probably limited to the apostles. Secondly, you have the word of knowledge. He goes on to say in verse 8, and to another, the word of knowledge. Uh, according to the same spirit. Now, there's no consensus whatsoever among scholars, among theologians, as to the clear distinction between Logos Sophias and Logos um, Gnosios. In other words, the word, of, the, 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 the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. But we know they can't be synonymous. They've got to be two different things. And while the word of wisdom Uh, may have been unique to the inspired apostles and maybe some of the prophets in the early days of the church uh, that received direct revelation from God, we believe that the word of knowledge would have probably been given to preachers and teachers. Remember, they did not have the New Testament. So this was probably a gift to them. And it would appear um, that the distinctive feature here is the personal apprehension of the mysteries of God and those things that were communicated in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament that are now being explained and elaborated upon in the New Testament and the skillful ability to not only see it but apply it to the contemporary issues of life. Now, this too would have been revelatory in the beginning of the church age, but it would also include the ability to piece together Uh, certain aspects of the Old Testament truths that pointed to new covenant realities. And it's possible that some variation of this gift still exists today. There's reason to believe that perhaps some of this is given to uh, pastor teachers. We read about another gift, the gift of pastor teacher in Ephesians 4, 11 through following. And number three, we talked about the gift of faith, beginning in verse 9 there, to another faith by the same spirit. And as we discussed before, this speaks of a specific gift to specific people to have the extraordinary measure of trust in overwhelming situations, things that seem impossible. Uh, Those were uh, the, the types of 
or there were issues there in the early church, I should say, in particular, um, where they faced insurmountable challenges like martyrdom. And it's possible that this gift continues today. We can't say for sure. But now today we come to the gifts of healing. Notice in verse 9, and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. This is the second confirmatory sign gift. Do we still have this on the back of the bulletin, the, the list of these gifts? Yeah, okay, so you can, you, you can see it there. This is, dear friends, this is the divine enablement uh, to restore the sick to uh, immediate, thorough, permanent health without uh, an, an, even a necessary faith response by the one that is being healed. Um, healing, by the way, is, is also in the plural in the Greek, so it could be translated healings, the gifts of healings, indicating that um, those with this gift were able to trust God to heal many kinds of afflictions through the power of the Spirit. Uh, but it would not have excluded um, the use of medical science and surgical methodologies and so forth, like Dr. Luke would have used. And this gift belonged, we believe, exclusively to Christ and the apostles, uh, even the 70 in Luke 10. We read about that. And some associates of the apostles, like Philip uh, in Acts 5. Now, some of the people in Corinth, when they heard about all of this, they may have witnessed this. They may even have been the recipients of some of that healing. But we must understand, while, while God still heals today according to his will, and often through the use of, of medicine and surgeries and sometimes in miraculous ways that we can't explain, no one today possesses this gift. And anyone that claims they do is a fraud. No so-called faith healers today practice anything close to resembling the kinds of healings that we see in the New Testament with Jesus and the apostles. They healed with a word or a touch. They did not need a controlled environment with special lights and curtains in order to be able to heal. They also healed instantaneously. The healing was dramatic and immediate, so it couldn't be mistaken as, quote, getting well over time. They healed totally. Every healing recorded in the New Testament was complete. It required no need to develop over time. Moreover, they healed everybody. The majority of people Jesus or the apostles healed demonstrated faith in advance, but some of them didn't. They also healed organic diseases, not just a sore back or ringing in my ear or those types of things. There was not only relief from symptoms or from pain, there was internal healing of organs. There, was, there were missing limbs that appeared and that type of thing. And then finally, they raised the dead. Now, that was not common, but the miraculous ability of Jesus and the apostles included power over death when God so willed. And any claims of resurrections um, after the first century cannot be verified and must be dismissed. Now, it's important for you to understand that this gift could not be exercised indiscriminately, but only when a man so gifted knew 
for certain that the healing would be in concert with God's will and God's purpose. In other words, they didn't just go around and just heal everybody. The gift was used sparingly. And it was never given primarily for the purpose of eradicating physical disease in, in the culture, in the, or I should say in that region. Like all miraculous gifts, the purpose of the gift was to authenticate the gospel messenger and his message that indeed this man is from God to give him credibility, not to eliminate diseases and physical maladies. Even those who were healed, we know, eventually died. For example, Paul had the gift, but he never healed himself, nor did he ask someone else to bring healing to him. Paul did not heal Timothy's stomach ailment, but told him to do what? Drink a little wine. Remember that? 1 Timothy 4. Now, some of you take that to the extreme, but that is something that the Apostle Paul told him to do. Paul's associate, remember Trophimus, was, quote, left sick at Miletus in 2 Timothy 4.20. Paul could have healed his dear friend Epaphroditus. Remember, he was, he was sick unto death. But evidently, God wanted Paul to cry out to him uh, for, for help, which he did. And in response, God healed his co-worker. We read in Philippians 2.27, God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And folks, think about this now. Jesus said that the Spirit's primary purpose in all things is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? John 16, 8. And to point people to Christ. Not point people to him, but to point people to Christ. Not to come so that everybody could be healthy, wealthy, and successful, and rich, in fact, Jesus said in John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So my point here is that the purpose of all spiritual gifts endowed by the Spirit of God are ultimately given to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior and Lord. Not to bring an end to physical problems. Not to point people to the Holy Spirit as the focal point of the church's message, like you would see in the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. And certainly not to point people to some phony faith healer, like Oral Roberts. Remember him? Remember the, the whole seed faith scam? Well, they made millions off of that. Satanic counterfeit. It's interesting, by the way, how he spawned numerous other televangelists and faith healers just like him that we see in the word faith movement. I noticed that Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Ted Haggard, Kenneth Copeland, Carlton Pearson, and Billy Joe Doherty are all alumni of Oral Roberts University. Surprise, surprise. Now, to be sure, the gifts of healing were not given to draw attention to men like that or to men like Benny Hinn who really took up the mantle from Oral Roberts, if you read the history. You, you, you've seen him, I'm sure. He can slay everybody with the spirit, and they all fall back, all kinds of demonic stuff. In fact, Benny Hinn's website boasts that his, quote, crusades have included audiences up to 7.3 million in three services in India, 
the largest healing service in recorded history. That's sad. It's frightening. I mean, people won't come to hear the gospel, but they'll come to get healed, so to speak. According to him, quote, healings of all kinds occur and God makes himself powerfully known, end quote. He's speaking of his monthly miracle crusades. By the way, this is the same charlatan who told TBN viewers to put their caskets of dead loved ones in front of the television and take their hand and touch the television set um, to touch the screen. And as a result, he said, quote, they will be raised from the dead by the thousands. I mean, this is just mindless stuff. And again, TBN headquarters is here in, in Hendersonville. It's frightening. I still remember Jan Crouch. Remember Paul and Jan the pink-haired lady, I, I believe she's passed away now. I mean, this hair looked like an explosion in a mattress factory, you know, just, just, just huge. I mean, it made Dolly Parton look bald. I mean, it was, it was freaky. And I remember that tearful account where she told how God miraculously raised her pet chicken from the dead. You know, you hear those types of things. Just nothing too outlandish. And you know what's sad, folks, is there are people who are desperate. They, they're really looking for something, and what they need is Christ, not some counterfeit. That's the heartbreaking thing about all of this. So bottom line, the gifts of healing, like all of the confirmatory sign gifts, were supernatural endowments to authenticate both the message and the messenger of the gospel. And furthermore, the miraculous New Testament healings were immediate. They were thorough they, and permanent. They weren't partial. They weren't gradual. They weren't temporary. I, I think of when Jesus healed the blind man. Remember when he spit and he made the mud, put it on him, and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam there in, in, in John 9? I mean, think about what happened there. Talk about miraculous. Not just the eyes began to work. But so many other things. I mean, suddenly there, 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 are, there are perfect retinas and a cornea and an iris with an adjustable circular opening called pupils, which can expand and contract depending upon the amount of light that enters the eye. All of that happens just like that. But also millions of nerve cells that have never been formed before because he was blind from birth. They had never been formed before. Suddenly, they're able to transmit electronic signals of these optical images into the visual cortex of the brain. And then the myriads of brain cells that had to suddenly be created and all of the neurotransmitters throughout the entire body that had never been formed because they had never been need needed. Suddenly, they are there. Moreover, now he's able to take all of this information that's coming through his eyes into his brain and his whole body is being flooded with information, yet he's able to function accordingly. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Not, boy, yeah, you know, my back feels better after that. But remember, the purpose of the gifts of healing in the, in the early church was not to bring healing to everyone with physical problems, but to authenticate the message and the messenger of the word of God. So it was used sparingly. But at the completion of the canon, those signs were no longer necessary, and they gradually disappeared, as you will see. Well, moving along quickly, I'll do one more here. That's the affecting of miracles. This is the third confirmatory sign gift. Notice in verse 9, 
He says, and to another, the effecting of miracles. This, dear folks, would have been the divine empowerment to perform works of power that would contravene or exacerbate the the normal processes of nature. The, these are acts of God that are that are contrary to the ordinary workings of nature. These would have been uh, acts that were able to to overrule or even suspend the laws of nature. But they were only done to confirm the messianic claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, never to show off or to entertain. The very first example of this was when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. By the way, that's contrary to the myths and legends that you hear that when Jesus was little, you know, he would, he would perform miracles. And I remember reading one where he made, he made birds out of clay and, and he clapped his hands and they could fly. And I don't know, he probably, you know, turned bullies into frogs or whatever. You know, he didn't, he, we don't see anything like that. But Jesus' first miracle was at the wedding feast, John 2, 11. This, be, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There you see the reason for the gift. And it was performed at a wedding because Jesus likens the physical aspect of the coming kingdom to a wedding. This is God's great celebration of his son and his, with his bridal church. Matthew 22, 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And in John 3, 27 and following, we read how Jesus emphatically identified himself as the messianic bridegroom. So all of these miracles orbited around the idea of proclaiming the deity, the messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in that miracle, he turned water into wine to symbolize that he is bringing in a new kingdom. And he, he's, he's using the metaphor of wine to describe the new order. And it's for this reason, it was part of the Passover feast, you, you will recall, that illustrates both the redeeming and cleansing nature of the blood of Christ. And so the first miracle pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, not only as the creator of all things physical, but also the creator of the new spiritual order. This points to the new covenant of grace, the new birth, the new kingdom. His work of redemption is being put on display. The old economy of the Mosaic law with all of its rituals and ceremonies and cleansing, all of that is passing away. It's no longer necessary. So if you study that passage, he's saying, put away your stone pots filled with water. I'm going to fill them with wine, which not only gladdens the heart, but points to the once for all cleansing of my blood. I'm bringing in the new wine of my kingdom. So I don't want you to think that these miracles were somehow to show off or, I mean, they all had specific reasons Jesus performed many miracles. John 20, verse 30, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Wouldn't you like to know what they were? But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, over the course of Jesus' ministry, we know the scriptures teach us that 
My, he, he, he created food, remember, with the fishes and the loaves of bread. He walked on water with Peter. Uh, he calmed a storm. He, he took a coin out of the mouth of a fish. Uh, he disappeared from a hostile crowd. Uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he peeled back his flesh and the effulgence of his glory shone forth. Uh, he ascended into a, a cloud as he went back into heaven and so forth. But you must understand there is no record in Scripture that any of his disciples ever performed a miracle that overruled or suspended the laws of nature. We don't see that anywhere. Paul exercised this power when he blinded, uh, remember, Elymas the the magician in Acts 13. Um, Peter exercised it when he condemned Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. We know that Philip and Stephen demonstrated the gifts of miracles in Acts 6, even though we're not told really what they were. In Acts 8, we know that Philip cast out a demon and healed the lame man and, and, and it was also that was paralyzed. In Iconium, we learn in Acts 14.3 that Paul and Barnabas, quote, spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Now, it's interesting that the term miracle in the original language is dunamis, and it, it can literally be translated power. And it is often used in the New Testament in the context of casting out demons. We know that the Lord gave that power to the 70, for example, in in Luke 9 and 10. And similarly, Jesus cast out demons with this power, like like the one in Luke 4. Remember the demon-possessed man? Um, the, The demon was mocking Jesus in the synagogue at Capernaum, and Jesus commanded that the demon come out, and which he did. And in Luke 4, verse 36, we read, And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. So the effecting of miracles probably referred to these kinds of things and overlapped with the gifts of healing. But certainly no one has these kinds of supernatural abilities today. Now, as we wrap this up this morning, I must say, look, there, there is no specific, one specific passage in Scripture that specifies whether miracles uh, through men and temporary gifts ceased after the apostles or whether or not they continued. But the overall testimony of Scripture says that that indeed is what happened, that after the apostolic age and after the canon was completed, that they ceased. And it's fascinating when you study Scripture as a whole, you will see that there are three major periods in history where God performed miracles through men. And in every case, it was only to authenticate messengers as bearing true revelation from God. Those three periods of history were, number one, the ministries of Moses and Elijah and Joshua. And then secondly, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And finally, the ministries of Christ and his apostles. And after each one of those segments of history, you see new revelation being recorded in the written word. But there's no evidence of any 
miraculous workings of God after the post-apostolic church. We don't see it anywhere in history until 1960 in California. Now, what does that tell you? My Satan has birthed a whole lot of bad things out of California, right? But it's important to note that even in the New Testament record, we see lots of miraculous activities occurring in, in, the, in the early books like in Acts and in 1 Corinthians and, and Romans. But even in James, the book of James, which is the, the earliest of all the epistles, we, we see that James exhorted believers who were seriously ill to call for the elders to come and, and to anoint them and pray over them rather than to call for someone with the gift of healing. But the later epistles indicate that those phenomena were waning. And once the canon of Scripture is, was closed with John's revelation, there was no longer reason for men uh, to perform miracles to prove that their message was from God. And the purpose of the confirmatory sign gifts ceased, including the ability to speak in various language, languages, the speaking in tongues, and the ability to interpret, it, interpret those languages for the edification of the body. And that's where we, will, where we will go next week when we come together. So in closing, dear friends, and may I encourage you, just thank the Lord this week for, for the great length that he has gone to to reveal himself in his word. He's given us his written word. And he's also equipped us with, with these various gifts. You know, they fall under two major headings, speaking gifts and, and, and serving gifts. And we all have them. There's variations of all. They look differently with everyone. But just thank him for that. I mean, where would we be if we did not have such condescending love, if we did not have his word, and if we did not submit to the authority of his word and use the gifts properly? Where would we be? I'll tell you where we would be, like where a lot of churches are today that disregard all of that. And so let's thank the Lord for this. And, and it's for this reason, again, that we must remain faithful to the authority of Scripture, not to subjective feelings and private revelations, but to contend earnestly for the faith. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. John 17, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So when we stick to the word, we're fine. Once you deviate from it, it's anybody's guess. And that's what Satan wants us to do. So let's take these things very seriously. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray that you will help us to remain steadfast in our determination to divide it rightly and to be obedient to it, that it will remain the sole source of authority in faith and in practice that we might enjoy every expression of your goodness and grace in our lives, that sinners will be converted and that saints will be encouraged as we live in these dark days of apostasy. So we thank you, Father, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.